Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Wow. Today I had the opportunity to connect with Dr. Rick Johnson. He's a professor of medicine at the University of Colorado and is both a clinician and a researcher. He's an international expert on sugar and fructose and has made many discoveries on how sugar and fructose play a role in obesity and diabetes. I loved talking about his new book, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. We dove deep into how his curiosity has fueled his entire medical career We spent a great deal of time talking about why fructose is intricately involved in not only weight gain, but regaining weight, the impact of obesity, hormonal regulation, how fructose lowers our ATP and impacts our mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of our cells. We spoke about artificial sweeteners, the polyol pathway, uric acid, dehydration, and how this can actually create fructose in the body the impact of alcohol, and the antidote to many of the things I've alluded to, the switch diet. I think Dr. Johnson is absolutely gracious, humble, and brilliant. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I had in recording it with him. Well, I'm so excited to connect with you, Dr. Johnson. Thank you for being open to coming on the podcast and talking about a topic that I really have a newfound appreciation for. Thank you, Cynthia. It's really a great pleasure to be on your show. So tell me how a nephrologist or a kidney doctor became so interested in uric acid. I'm sure you get asked this question often. Well, the first thing is just to say that I'm a very curious person, you know, extremely curious, and I tend to dive into things and keep at it. And uh, it's probably like you. And so I, you know, I'm a MD, I do see patients and I, you know, I have a very strong clinical practice, but I also have been doing medical research my whole career. And I became very interested in uric acid because it has a, a nice, interesting relationship with kidneys. The kidney excretes uric acid, but also can be a target for uric acid. And Uric acid crystals can form in the kidney, just like they do in the joints where it causes the disease gout. And so I was very interested in the role of uric acid in disease. And we're studying it. We found that it was important in high blood pressure, especially early on. And what we discovered was that in the early phases of hypertension, people tend to have a very high uric acid. And if you lower uric acid in people with early hypertension, you can control the blood pressure. And so that was a pretty exciting discovery that uric acid could have a role in blood pressure. And hypertension has been increasing in in the country, just like obesity. And so I was wondering what might be driving up the uric acid as a mechanism for driving the increase in high blood pressure. And I was aware that sugar could raise uric acid and it's not... So sugar is actually two different carbohydrates. It's uh, glucose, which is that critical fuel in our blood, critical carbohydrate fuel we use. And then there's another carbohydrate called fructose. And fructose is the sugar in fruits that makes fruit sweet. 
And when you combine fructose and glucose, you get a very delicious thing called sugar, table sugar. And you can also combine them, you know, manufacturers will combine them to form this thing called high fructose corn syrup, which is also very liked by people. And so they add it to all these foods, including processed foods. And so there's a large amount of sugar that people are eating and it's been increasing and it correlates with the rise in uric acid. And so when I was studying uric acid and blood pressure, then I started studying sugar and blood pressure. And then we had this surprising finding that when we lowered uric acid in animals given sugar, that we could improve not just the blood pressure, which we expected, but also that we had effects on weight gain and fat and fatty liver and insulin resistance and other features of obesity. And that kind of changed my career. And I started really becoming a person who studied metabolism. And I dove into the biochemistry of how fructose works. And I expanded my research from lab rats to animals in the wild and in nature and started studying evolution and we uh, resurrected extinct genes and, and started studying them. And we started looking at this from a very big picture uh, viewpoint. And then that led me to write this book right here. <laughs> Nature wants us to be fat. And it's like an instinct. There's a, like a real desire to be able to have enough fat to survive. And there's biologic processes is driving it. And the insights from that have helped me figure out you know, what kind of, you know, important factors on what's driving today's obesity and today's hypertension and diabetes. And, and it's also, by God, it's carried over to giving the insights into diseases like cancer and Alzheimer's disease, because it, it's sort of like we fell upon a very, very basic mechanism that has gone awry, as I say, it's gone gone awry in our current society because we're eating way too much sugar and we're also producing too much fructose in our bodies too. So that's the short. <laughs> no, but it's such a fascinating discussion yeah. and listeners here are very metabolic health savvy. I think that, you know, one thing I feel so very fortunate for is that I'm able to connect with clinicians and individuals like yourself that are really changing the narrative. I know that as someone who trained at a big research hospital in inner city, Baltimore, you can imagine that because my whole background's in cardiology as an NP, a lot of the medications that I used to give my patients, as one example, would precipitate gouty episodes. And so there were specific medications that would address their high blood pressure, which would then give them what they affectionately referred to as gouch, as in gout and ouch. Gouch was a big problem for a lot of my patients. And so it really brings me back to thinking how differently we think about uric acid now, because I truly believe. 20 years ago, we thought about uric acid, at least as a clinician, I thought about it as I know when I prescribe this particular medication, what will likely happen is my patient will get a gouty episode, not making the interrelationship that there was the connection with the metabolic health piece. So I'm so grateful that your curiosity has brought you to, you know, making these very important distinctions and continuing your research. Now, you kind of touched on the fact that obesity rates are escalating and a lot of it is related to the dietary choices that are available to us and dietary choices that we are making. And so can we at least start the conversation talking about 
the role of hibernation, because I love how you kind of weave through your discussion, talking about different animals and how animals in the wild, their bodies will adapt to either food scarcity or temperature changes and turning on specific types of genes. I found this really interesting, the whole concept of triggering the survival response and how this actually impacts us as individuals. Yes. So, you know, it turns out that for years, most of us, including me, were really addressing diabetes and obesity by taking an animal with obesity and diabetes and trying to figure out what was going wrong. And, you know, how is it that these diseases are occurring? What's the actual biologic pathways involved in diabetes? And so we're kind of working with the notion that these are diseases, these are bad conditions, and that you know, what went wrong. And interestingly, in the wild, it's what it, you know, obesity is about what's going right. <laughs> and what happens is animals will normally regulate their weight very well. If you take a squirrel and you, you know, give it extra food and force it to eat, you force feed it so it gains weight, and then you stop the force feeding, it will go back to its normal weight and for that time of the year. Likewise, if you fast an animal, take away its food so it can't eat and it will lose weight, and then you allow it to eat, it'll go right back to the weight it's supposed to be. Normally, animals regulate weight very well. There's some evidence humans used to do that better and also did that well. But what's happened is there's something that can trigger weight gain. And it's in animals, when it happens, it's usually desired. And what happens is, um, you know, the bear knows that winter is coming and there's not going to be much food around. And so if it just does its normal thing, it's going to suddenly be caught in the middle of winter with no food and starve. And the fear of starvation is a very significant thing. The uh, birds that migrate long distance, they can, some of them will, will migrate 10,000 kilometers nonstop. I mean, that's a huge distance. And they do it without food or water and they just keep flying. And so how do they keep going? And so, you know, we thought, wow, why don't we try to understand why these animals gain weight before these events? You know, the bear will suddenly in the fall start gaining weight. And, you know, what triggers that? What is it all about? And here, obesity is a good thing. So, you know, if we can understand how, why animals are triggering it and how they're triggering it, then we can go back to the human and then apply that knowledge to try to understand things. And it was incredibly insightful when we did that. You know, the, the first thing was that we discovered that when an animal is preparing for hibernation, it doesn't just increase its fat. It doesn't just increase eating food and getting fat. It actually develops an orchestrated response. It's this huge, it's like a, there's like 10 instruments in the orchestra that are all doing their special things. So you start, the animal will first, it'll get hungry, even though it's eating a lot. So it, it loses its ability to control its appetite and it gets thirsty. Even if it's drinking water, it'll stay thirsty. And it will be, it'll start foraging for food. It's an actual behavior. And it's really cool the way it does it because it will increase, you know, while it's foraging, it's spending energy, right? So it tries to overall reduce its energy. And it does that by reducing the energy while it's resting. So it reduces the metabolism, its metabolism while it's resting. 
so that it can conserve its energy for when it's looking for food. Brilliant. Actually, it's brilliant. And then it will eat a lot of food and it will preferentially store it as fat. So it will, you know, when you eat, you make, you know, you're eating calories and the calories can be used. Really, there's three ways calories can go. They can be used as instant energy, which is our ATP, which we make. That allows me to talk to you <laughs> and you to talk to me. And, and, you know, so energy is key. You know, that's the immediate energy and that's the energy we feel. And the excess energy gets stored as fat. And that's a, also energy that can be tapped into when you're not eating any food. And you can break down the fat to make more ATP. And then you can also do a thing called uncoupling where the energy factories that are making the ATP, you kind of um, decrease their efficiency and it leads to the generation of heat. And so you can uncouple the mitochondria to lose calories that way, but animals tend not to want to do that. What they want to do is they want to store energy or make energy. They don't really want to waste energy. So when we started studying this, these animals They get hungry, they get thirsty, they eat more, they're foraging, they start storing fat, and they also become insulin resistant, which I was taught that was like a bad thing, right? But actually, if you're an animal in the wild, insulin resistance is great because it helps preserve the glucose in your blood for the brain. When you get insulin resistant, just as a reminder, Insulin is a hormone released from the pancreas that moves glucose into tissues, especially muscle. And it's really important to help deliver the glucose we eat into the tissues that where they can be used. But, and the biggest site is the muscle. The brain uses a little bit of insulin for sure, but not a lot. And so there's many regions of the brain that don't use much insulin at all. So if you become insulin resistant, what it does is it reduces the glucose into the muscles. So there's more glucose allowed for the brain and a setting of starvation. That's a good thing. If you're fearing starvation or you're fearing food shortage, what you want to do is you want to preserve the glucose you have for the brain, because that's the key to survival is to be able to navigate, to be able to think, to be able to respond when a predator is coming and you know, it isn't about just being strong. It's about understanding when danger's coming and what to do. And then it raises blood pressure. And, you know, the goal isn't really to make you hypertensive. The goal is just to keep your blood pressure strong enough and your circulation strong enough so that in the setting of food shortage and starvation, you can maintain adequate blood pressure to hold, you know, to be able to think and to keep your circulation strong. So uh, it turns out this whole orchestration events, even low-grade inflammation is induced by this pathway, and that actually may help you fight infections and so forth. So this is, it's a survival response. The whole purpose of getting fat was to activate a process to protect us. It wasn't to, and actually, Cynthia, you know, mild obesity, you know, if you're overweight, it can be associated with survival in us, there's some studies that suggest, you know, that if you have cancer or if you uh, have heart disease or if you're old, I'm getting up there. <laughs> and when that's true, it's that it, you actually live longer if your BMI is like 27 versus 25. So being mildly overweight can be associated with, sir, you know, with an advantage living longer. 
you know, there's even one study that just suggests that for the population as a whole, it's probably better to have a BMI of 26. But I think most of us would not do not want to be overweight. And in a world where food is available all the time, you know, it's not such a bad idea to keep your BMI around 2021. We know that the lower, you know, that we want to be in a healthy range of weight because that correlates so often with better blood pressure and lower cardiovascular risk and so forth. So I, although being a little overweight may be good if you have cancer and something, I still recommend that we shoot for a normal BMI. And so we should try to figure out why animals gain weight and what drives that process and how we can turn it around. Well, I think you bring up such a good point. And, and I believe that we probably read the same study because I think I was listening to a podcast when I was in the car and my children were asking their teenagers, you know, what does a BMI of 27 look like? And so I was kind of talking about it and I indicated to them, having been someone who spent 13 days in the hospital and lost 15 pounds, I can understand why it may be to your advantage if you have a little extra weight hanging around, because if you, you know, get a chronic disease or get an acute illness or spend time in the hospital, you have a little bit more reserves, but I agree with you in terms of metabolic health, we really need to be focused and conscientious about maintaining a healthy weight for each one of us. That might be a little bit different for each one of us and making sure we're on as little amount of medication as possible. Now, when we're talking about kind of conventional theories for the obesity and pandemic, what are your thoughts on the concept of, you know, SECO, this calories in calories out model, which obviously I tend to align myself much more with the concepts, really looking at metabolic influence of the processed food industry. What are your thoughts on that? Because there's still a very fervent amount of the population that really wants to focus solely on calories versus the influence of food and hormonal regulation. Well, so, so the first thing is, I mean, physics is true. So, but, but you are correct in what you, where you're headed, but physics is also true. So I'm going to try to explain this as best as I can. Uh, the first thing is, if you go on a low calorie diet, I don't care what it is. If it's a low calorie diet, could be eating sawdust, whatever, you will lose weight because we have, we're burning so many calories a day. And when you go on a low calorie diet, it is going to cause weight loss. So there is a role of calories and weight. Okay. For sure. It's just, uh, you know, we actually, I have to say, I did some of the initial work to show that it was more than calories that drives obesity. In fact, I think, you know, our group probably did the earliest work on this. So let me take you through it. <laughs> it turns out that certain foods make you hungry. Okay. And when you get hungry and you cannot control your appetite, you're going to gain weight because you're going to eat more calories. At the same time, that same, those same foods activate this survival switch so that you are reducing your metabolism when you're at rest. And so you're burning less energy and you're hungry and eating more. And that is going to be associated with weight gain. And you're going to eat more calories and it's going to be how much calories you eat is going to dictate how much weight gain you are, you're going to do. But for example, high fat diets have a lot of calories because there's like nine calories per gram. So if you've activated this biologic switch where you are hungry, you don't control your appetite and you drop your energy, how much energy you're spending. Now, high fat foods are going to make you gain weight. Okay. 
So that that the main food that triggers this biologic response is fructose. That's what our studies found. And it found that that's why sugar makes you gain weight because the fructose in the sugar affects your appetite, makes you hungry, decreases your resting energy metabolism. And now once you've activated that switch, now when you eat French fries and fried foods, you're going to gain a lot of weight. You're going to gain weight with any food, but you know, fat has nine calories per gram. So it's just easier to get super fat with a high fat diet. Once you know, you've been giving, you've activated the switch. So if I want to make an animal fat, I give it sugar to activate the switch because sugar has fructose. And then I give it a high fat diet. And when I do that combination, the animal gets huge. Okay. If I give the high sugar diet without the fat, they'll still gain weight, but it's slower because there's, you know, you have to eat a lot and a lot of carbs to get the calories that you would get with the fat. If I give fat alone, like if I give a large diet alone, the animals won't gain weight. A high fat diet alone does not cause an animal to gain weight. The one sort of exception in the animal is butter for some reason causes a little bit of weight gain. I haven't figured that one out yet. But really, if you give fructose, that triggers the biologic switch and now you'll gain weight. So the very first thing to tell you is, yes, you know, law of thermodynamics works. Now, here's the special thing. You can also give fructose and prevent the animal from eating more. So you make they're hungry, but you now prevent them from eating what they want to eat. And guess what? First off, they'll still gain a little weight. So we did a study where we put them on a diet. I mean, these animals were on a diet. They were on caloric restriction. We had a control group and we had the fructose group and or the sugar group. And even when they're on a diet, the animals gained a little weight because their resting energy metabolism was lower. So they were able to get, a, they could conserve and they actually gained a little weight just with sugar alone. And the control animals cost lost weight because they did not drop their resting energy to the same degree. When you go on a diet, you do drop your energy metabolism a little bit. So they did a little bit too, but these guys on sugar dropped it more. Okay, that, but here's the catch. Even though they only gained a tiny bit of weight, all the animals given sugar still became diabetic. They all got insulin resistance and diabetes. They all got fatty liver. They all got hypertensive. I mean, they activated all these other processes that are bad. And I have personally taken care of people who are on diets, eating high sugar, and have gotten into trouble with fatty liver, with hypertension, and so forth, where we've been able to help them by reducing their sugar intake. So it turns out that there's two mechanisms. For weight gain, the first thing is that, yes, weight gain is related to calories in and calories out. But it isn't just that you're eating more and exercising less. You have to eat foods that make you hungry. So you do eat more. But even if you control how much food you're eating, you'll still get all the metabolic effects associated with fructose if you're eating a lot of sugar or high fructose corn syrup. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. 
Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. It's interesting to me that when I started learning more about the influence of the processed food industry, so probably 10 years ago, I kind of did a deep dive into the role of high fructose corn syrup and kind oh, of trending yeah. the data about the rates of obesity. And having trained in inner city Baltimore, where a lot of individuals were on public assistance and even like the WIC programs. And I attended a university where we did a lot of community outreach. And one of the things I used to always say to my professors was well, most of what these people are eating and they're giving their infants and their children and you know their teenagers is setting them up for a lifetime of metabolic disease because it's my understanding that liquid fructose and high fructose corn syrup is about the most destructive 
I was about to say, I don't even want to call it a food-like substance. It's poison, uh, poison. honest to God. Yeah, it's one of the worst things that you could ingest. And so I love that, you know, you kind of brought that into relationship between weight gain and fructose consumption. And people that are listening, this is why it's important to read food labels, because there's a lot of high fructose corn syrup in packaged and processed foods. And it's oftentimes sneaky. You know, the food manufacturers try to be so savvy. They try to do everything they can to disguise what exactly, what type of sugar is in an item. You know, there's all these now contrived made up names. My kids and I used to play games when we were in the grocery store and, you know, when they were younger, they'd say, well, it's dextrose. So it's not sugar. I was like, no, that's actually sugar. (laughs) The many names of sugar. Yeah. So really important to understand how that happens. I want to follow up on what you just said. And, and uh, just as you went back and looked in the 1970s when high fructose corn syrup was brought, was started being used and how there was this dramatic increase in obesity with the onset of using high fructose corn syrup. I actually went back all the way through history. I got, you know, I'm a, I was an archaeology major in college and So I actually went all the way back in time. But what I was really fascinated with was when sugar was first introduced back in the, you know, 500 BC, you can track obesity and diabetes by tracking the trade industry of sugar. And when sugar was brought into Egypt, that was the first time they saw diabetes, but it wasn't being seen in Spain at the same time because there was no sugar there and so forth. And then initially, sugar was expensive. And it was the royalty and the people with power and the wealthy that were able to afford it. And so for a long time, obesity was very, very rare in, you know, indigenous peoples and so forth. And so it's really interesting, like early studies show that Native Americans and African Americans There was almost no diabetes in 1890 if you were black. There was like no diabetes. It was like no gout. It was like a case report. And same thing with Native Americans and same thing with Pacific Islanders. There wasn't diabetes, wasn't present before uh, the introduction of sugar. And so it's incredible how there's been this role reversal where the disadvantaged peoples at one point were completely There was no obesity and diabetes in these groups. And then suddenly, as sugar became inexpensive, we see this big reversal. And now, because they they sell soft drinks for so little, it's like cheaper than water, drinking water. And so what's happening is that there are a lot of people drinking this as, and so unfortunately, now it's kind of a reversal and, and it's a disease that tends to hit the disadvantaged. And so, and children and adolescents who are taking huge amounts of sugar. There's some studies that show that some adolescents are eating 25% of their diet. Yeah, 25% of their diet is added sugars. Unbelievable. It really is. You know, when I lived in Northern Virginia, I was a co-president of a, not a company, it was a group called Real Food for Kids. And we were trying really hard to reinvent what was considered to be a school lunch because most of the school lunch was focused on my plate and was very carbohydrate focused, very little protein, wrong types of fats, far too much sugar. And, you know, we were really proud of the work that we did within our school district, but I recognize that 
it's a privilege to be able to advocate that, you know, the local farmers are donating meat and you're getting fresh grown vegetables. That's not what the average impoverished child is able to consume. And sometimes in many instances, the only time that they're getting food is when they go to school. And so I think that we really need to, as a country, we really need to reflect on, you know, what we choose to value and, you know, in a lot of ways, parents assume that if it's in a grocery store or if it's accessible, that it's healthy. And so I always think that it's important just to be fully transparent and say, you know, I have the ability to be able to make different choices for my family, but I recognize there are a lot of families that don't. And so just being conscientious about the amount of fructose that you are consuming, that in and of itself has a profound net impact on health and wellness. So one thing that's, you know, was really on my mind when, and I have so many notes, like when I read your book, I made so many notes, so many things, there's so many amazing facts. You absolutely need to go out and, and, you know, look at this book. One thing that I found really interesting is when we were talking about calories as being the law of thermodynamics, still relevant, when we were looking at data on how much more food we're consuming, since the 1960s and the direct influence of some of its behavioral, but obviously it is losing satiety cues, eating more in restaurants. But it was interesting from between 1961 and 2013, we went from 2,900 calories to 3,600. Yeah, absolutely. Let me talk about that for a second. But first, let me congratulate you on doing, helping the children and being in a group that did that. I got involved with a group here called Living Closer Foundation. And we did a lot of work going to the schools and teaching the kids about sugar and getting them to look at labels and, you know, creating that, making a drink and showing that, you know, they would add a teaspoon of sugar and say, how does that taste? And then they would add like 10 teaspoons of that. And the person would go, oh, horrible. And then they said, well, that's what's in a soft drink. And so congratulations to you on that. It's, uh, you know, education and trying to take this kind of information to the next generation is so important. Now that your question about food, the fact that we're eating more, I have to tell you this uh, study that was published in JAMA. So there was a study published in JAMA. Uh, they took all, they saw that these kids were, you know, a little bit overweight and they were eating a lot of junk food and watching a lot of TV. Sound familiar? <laughs> and, uh, So they decided to do a clinical study and take away the TV and, or they put monitors on the TV, but anyway, they were able to reduce the number of hours watching from something like 24 hours a week down to like 12 hours a week or something. And the theory was that when you do that, you're going to increase the activity and cause weight loss and the whole bit, because the idea is, was that the TV was the thing driving obesity and is. And then, the, you know, when you're sitting in front of the TV, you're eating the junk food. And so if we could just decrease the time in front of the screen, it would have an effect. And the interesting thing is it didn't increase their activity at all, taking away the TV. Didn't have a big impact on any of this. So, you know, what we're learning is that, you know, as we activate the switch, we're becoming less active. Yes. And we're becoming hungry. So we eat more. And so when we go to the restaurants and people are giving us bigger plates of food, they're doing that because if they don't, you're going to leave hungry and you're not going to come back. And, you know, it's also true that there's a tremendous advertisement uh, world 
trying to encourage us to go to movies and to go to watch TV shows. And they know how to attract our interests. And so there is, you know, some behavioral things driving this too. But the bottom line is that there's a biology behind it. And, you know, if you've activated the switch, you can, you know, you get hungry, you want to eat, you don't control your appetite. And, you know, the big breakthrough was the discovery of this hormone called leptin. I mean, when this was discovered, I think it was in the, I want to say it was in the eighties, but early nineties, maybe, but Friedman was the one who really figured this out, what, that there's a hormone called leptin and this hormone is released from our fat. And uh, the hormones goes to our brain, signals to an area of the brain called the hypothalamus and, and tells us when we're full. And so there are other, obviously, hormones involved in appetite too, but this is one of the big ones. And people who are overweight or obese tend not to respond to leptin. And so even though the leptin goes up after they eat, the brain is resistant to the signaling from leptin. And so they stay hungry. And that's been shown in humans. And if you give fructose to animals, they develop leptin resistance. We showed that when we were at the University of Florida and they'll eat more. And the way you can prove it is you can take an animal and you can inject it with leptin. And if they're sensitive to leptin, they will immediately reduce their food intake over the next 12 hours. And if they don't reduce their food intake at all, it means that they are resistant to leptin and they're still hungry. So you can actually do these kinds of tests and fructose caused leptin resistance. And once you become leptin resistance, then when you give high fat diet, they'll gain weight very quickly. And that's why a low carb diet, and if you put them on a fructose restriction, the leptin resistance will recover over a period of time. And when we did it, it, you know, it only took about two or three weeks on a low carb diet and maybe even two weeks and you became leptin sensitive again. And so this is why when you're on a low carb diet, you know, you're on a high fat diet, but you're not gaining weight because you are not leptin resistant. And so it's a fantastic, now you can eat that high fat diet and you're not really going to gain weight. Of course, a lot of us, it's not the fat we like, it's the carbs we like. And so that's the struggle of a low carb diet is the that people love sugar and they love high glycemic carbs. It's definitely a challenge. And I, I find leptin is probably one of my favorite hormones to actually talk about because it explains for a lot of individuals. And I seem to work solely with women. It seems to explain why they eat a meal and then they're still hungry. And yeah. then once they understand that there's a hormonal dysregulation, yeah, it, it explains quite a bit. And it's so validating because they've yeah. been told all you have to do is control calories. Then we explain, yes, potentially. However, what we also need to focus in on is that if these hormones aren't properly balanced, our appetite is, we're never going to be satiated and we're going to keep looking for food and we're not going to be looking for broccoli. We're going to look for chips and ice cream and chocolate and, you know, a dirty cupcake and whatever else we can get our hands yeah. on. You're exactly right. You know, the, the other thing which uh, we definitely need to talk about is this issue that it isn't just the fructose we eat, that the body can make fructose. And this was such a disappointment for me. I was, <laughs> I have to tell you that it was a disappointment for me. You know, I knew that there was a problem with the fructose story because there are animals that gain fat that are not eating a lot of 
a ton of fruit, for example. And so, and likewise, you know, uh, some people will tell you that, you know, they know that bread or potatoes make them fat. And so, um, I, you know, I knew that, and those don't contain fructose so much. And so I knew that there was something more. So in some respects, it was great to figure out how it was working, but it was a disappointment because I was hoping to just incriminate sugar and high fructose corn syrup, but those aren't the only foods that cause obesity. Well, I think it's important to talk and listeners are familiar with the terminology of mitochondria and that's the powerhouses of our cells. But if we're going to kind of lean into this fructose discussion, there's probably value in at least touching on what's yeah. happening with the ATP or the energy that is sparked in the cell that's impacted in a way that generates this other pathway. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. So just to begin with, you know, we know that energy is really what constitutes life. Having energy is what drives, makes us who we are. And so it's probably not a, a big surprise to know that it's critical for an organism to have enough energy. And so we talked about energy as being stored energy and ATP, but what the animal senses is its ATP level. So if its ATP levels go low, it seems to trigger starve, you know, the fear of starvation. And if you starve an animal, its ATP levels will go low because it will start using the fat to make up the ATP. But when the fat goes away and you're really starving, then the ATP levels fall and it becomes like a crisis. So somehow nature figured out that if they want you to gain weight, why not trick the body into thinking its energy levels are low? And if I can trick the body into thinking its energy levels are low, it's going to start eating more. It's going to start trying to put on fat. It will just be the natural response, the instinctual response. And what fructose does is it drops the ATP in the cell. And it does that by shifting the calories towards fat, which is stored ATP, but which the body can't sense. So when the ATP levels fall inside the cell, it's like an alarm signal. And almost all nutrients we eat, almost every food we eat, tries to keep the ATP at a high level. And only one nutrient that I'm aware of, only one, drops the ATP level. Alcohol does a little bit, but that turns out it may be through fructose, believe it or not. So, but anyway, we'll get there in a bit. But when you eat fructose, it drops the ATP in the cell and it signals an alarm and says, oh my God, your energy levels are falling. Time to start eating more, foraging for food becoming insulin resistant, start storing fat, start storing all these things, raise your blood pressure. It's the trigger and it does it by dropping the ATP. Now, the way it drops the ATP is totally cool. First, it consumes some ATP when the fructose is being metabolized. So fructose is metabolized so fast. And whenever you metabolize anything, you use some energy, you use some energy to digest food, to absorb food, to break down food. And, but there's always these very careful feedback systems to keep ATP levels normal, but not with fructose. So the first thing fructose does is it, with the more fructose you see, the more rapid the ATP falls. And so that's why soft drinks are really bad because you get a large dose in a short time. So the concentration that hits your liver is high. And so boom, the ATP levels fall. 
And that triggers an alarm. Now, it isn't just that fall in ATP because if it was, that only lasts, you know, a few minutes, you know, maybe an hour. And so what happens is once the ATP is consumed, the consumption of ATP generates a substance called AMP, which is then made back to ATP. But now this fructose activates an enzyme that sweeps away the AMP so that the AMP can't be made back to ATP. And it gets even continues on. That AMP is then broken down to the substance uric acid, which is how I got involved in this whole story. And the uric acid stuns the mitochondria, those energy factories, and reduces the energy produced from the mitochondria by blocking things in the Krebs cycle and then beta fatty acid oxidation and other things. Basically, it blocks the generation of ATP from the mitochondria. So that keeps the ATP levels low. And then there's this kind of primitive system that starts to take over that doesn't require oxygen called glycolysis. And that's good too. And interesting, by suppressing the mitochondria, it's actually helping the organism because one way you can get into trouble is if you don't have enough oxygen. And the mitochondria is where you use that oxygen to make energy. So if you have an energy crisis, this is a system that also protects you in a low oxygen state. So animals that are burrowing in the in ground that get into, you know, these like naked mole rat that lives in, a, in these deep burrows in Africa where there's like no oxygen down there, they're making fructose to help reduce their mitochondrial function and to increase glycolysis so that they can live off ATP without needing oxygen. So it's a survival mechanism, suppressing the mitochondria, stimulating this. And then there's also, it turns out that there's more ability to regenerate energy from a thing called AMP kinase. And there's another mechanism called the salvage pathway, and those get inhibited too. And so what happens is it consumes ATP, it reduces the production of ATP, and it blocks the salvage pathways that allow the recovery of ATP. And so the result is that ATP levels fall and they get somewhat low in the cell. And that's what drives the switch. And guess what low ATP levels do? It makes you tired. It doesn't give you the energy you want. And initially, when this happens, you do recover after you know, a number of hours. So what will happen is you'll keep eating, making more ATP and fat until finally you reconstitute your ATP levels, but at the expense of getting fatter. And so it's not a good system if you're chronically activating it. And then the other problem is if, if you're chronically activating this continued suppression of the mitochondria through this uh, oxidative stress that the uric acid does, leads to a reduction in the mitochondria over time. And that's really dangerous because as we reduce our mitochondria, that's really what we start seeing with aging. That's what we see when we kind of get locked into our weight where you've now gained weight and it's not so easy to lose it. And, or if you do lose it, you go right back. And that is often associated with, you know, a suppressed mitochondrial function and sometimes actually reduction in mitochondria. And so in that case, you've got to do things to, not only do you have to turn off the switch, but now we have to stimulate the regrowth of those mitochondria so you can be young again. So you can have that energy. So you can eat a regular meal and not worry about gaining weight. And so uh, what's fantastic is that, you know, understanding the biology allows us to see the solutions 
And it's possible, it's actually possible to cure obesity, I think. And it's going to be possible to really help people a lot, you know, with knowledge of this pathway and how it works. And most of the things that work today, that like your intermittent fasting and low-carb diets, these are wonderful approaches. And we can understand the benefits of these approaches by, you know, through understanding the science. So by understanding the science, suddenly we go, wow, that's why low-carb diets work. Oh, that's why intermittent fasting is more than just reducing calories. It's allowing the mitochondria to recover. Uh, And you can show that, you know, if you go on a low-carb diet or if you do intermittent fasting, you can show that that allows the mitochondria to start to recover and they start to grow again. And exercise can do some of the same things, uh, this zone two exercise. So what's wonderful is that, you know, when we were kind of working through the science, the, the biology, we go, aha, yes, that's why this works. That's why the Atkins diet works. That's why intermittent fasting works. That's why. And then we had some surprises too, like the dehydration story, which actually was not well known. And that may be one of the newest breakthroughs that's in the, you know, that in the book distinguishes it from a lot of other books is the importance of dehydration in obesity. But we can talk about that, I guess. No. And I have to tell you that, you know, as you were talking about dysfunctional mitochondria and one of my favorite benefits of fasting is autophagy and mitophagy and being able to get rid of these disease disordered cells. And so something listeners are definitely, they can make that association and how critically important, like we don't do fasting just to change body composition or lose weight. We do fasting for all these. I always say behind, you know, kind of underneath the hood, the things that may not be visible to us that are going on within the body that helps to support the body. I do want to talk about dehydration. In fact, this is like one of my I mean, it completely blew my mind. So let's talk about what dehydration is. Why is it important to these pathways? Why is it relevant? And I'm literally, as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking to myself, I've been doing a lot of talking today. I can already tell I'm clinically dehydrated. And in the back of my mind, after reading your book, I think differently about dehydration and why it's so significant. Well, I'm a kidney specialist. So when I was uh, in training, I was told that there was a myth that goes around that says that, you know, you need to drink eight glasses of water a day to stay thin. And that that was a myth because if you get dehydrated, the kidneys do the work for you. And and since I'm a kidney specialist, I should know that. And so this is, uh, in fact, that myth came up in a New York Times op-ed thing this last fall saying that calling, actually saying that drinking eight glasses of water a day is a myth, but it's not. It's based on hard science. You know, I have a paper (laughs) in a very top journal showing how it works. And let me explain, because hydration is a major key to health. And all those people who are running around with the water bottles, and many of them are thin, as you probably know, there's probably a reason that that correlates. So let me just take you through it. Interesting, this came back from our studies in nature. Yeah. So we were studying obesity in in nature, and we had this kind of big insight that fat isn't just a source of calories. Fat is a source of water. Now, I know you're going to say, what? Yeah, fat, you can't mix water with fat, right? There's no water in fat. But when you burn fat, you produce carbon dioxide and water. And animals know this. You know, biology knows this. We've known this, but we don't really talk about it. But like the camel, 
has a hump of fat. And when it needs water in the desert, it will break down the fat, not for the calories. It probably uses the calories too, but for the water. And a lot of animals in the desert will have fat like in their tails. You know, they don't want it on their body because that will cause insulation, make their temperature go up. So they put it like on a hump or on the, they love to put it in their tails. So there's this lemur that has a fat tail called the fat tail lemur. It's the only um, primate that hibernates, and it does so actually in the summer. Uh, so it's really called estivation when you do it that way. But what it does is it finds a little hollow in a, in a tree, and it just goes in there, and it sleeps for like five months and uses the fat to provide water because it tries to survive the dry season when there's very little water around. It's using it mainly for water, not for energy. I mean, it uses it for energy, too. And it turns out the hibernating bears, they're not drinking water during hibernation. They're getting their water from the fat. And it's, it turns out that, you know, a year long distance migrating bird. Yeah. You're making, using the fat to provide you the energy. It's giving you the water too. So it turns out that fat is a source of water. That was a big insight because when you, we knew that animals would start to eat and put on weight and fat when there was going to be no calories around, but we started realizing that they might do the same thing when there's no water around, that they have to activate the switch to store fat to protect them. And so that we said, aha, maybe dehydration can be a stimulus. And, you know, this gets back to the fact that the body can make fructose. And, you know, we had discovered that high glycemic carbs can make fructose. And that's why bread and uh, rice and potatoes were so bad. It wasn't just the sugar we were eating, but when you eat those substances, your body can make fructose. And it does so through a pathway called the polyol pathway. And the polyol pathway was known to be activated by dehydration. Ha! So now we got a story because if you get dehydrated, then you activate this polyol pathway, then you'll make fructose to help you store fat as a source, another source of water. So at that point, we realized that uh, fructose can be produced in the dehydrated state. And we looked at people who were overweight and it was striking how common dehydration is, is if you're overweight. I mean, most people who are overweight or obese are not drinking enough water. They have higher uh, markers of dehydration, such as serum, sodium, or the salt concentration in their blood tends to be high. There's other markers. You, you can do a thing called bioimpedance and measure the water inside the cell and so forth. And it turns out that people who are overweight or obese are much more likely to be dehydrated. So it turns out that dehydration is a major mechanism for stimulating this fructose production in your body. Now, the question is, is it just, when we talk about dehydration, I usually think of the person who's out in the sun and they're sweating a lot and they're exercising too much and they get dehydrated or maybe they have diarrhea. So it's like losing water. But there's a, a trick in nature to try to make you dehydrated and where you don't have to lose water to get dehydrated. So if you want to gain water to protect yourself, you don't want to get dehydrated by losing water to stimulate fructose. You want to keep gaining water to help you protect you during the time when you're out in the desert. And the best way is to eat salty food. Because when you eat salty food, you're not losing water, but you're gaining salt. And the salt goes into the blood 
and the salt concentration goes up and that makes you feel dehydrated. You get thirsty. So you want to drink more water. So that's going to be one way to drink more water. But if you're also stimulate you become hungry and activate the switch, it's actually helping you store fat as well. And so guess what? People who are overweight and obese tend to eat a lot of salty foods. And salt is very, very common in processed foods. And if you give salt to an animal, uh, you know, it takes a longer time, but it activates that polyol pathway. And then the animals become super fat and they become diabetic. So salt turns out to be a slow way of becoming obese. Sugars, you know, if you're a rat, laboratory rat <laughs> and you give a, you take sugar you're going to get become fat and insulin resistant in a couple months if you give salt it takes like four or five months but you're going to get fat and the way the salt works is it raises the salt concentration in the blood activates the polyol pathway and that helps convert carbs to fructose so it does require carbs to be present and so, uh, you know, if you're on a low carb diet and you just ate salt, you would activate the path, the enzyme. But if there's not a lot of glucose around, you're not going to get fat from that. So the high salt diet is really a way to help convert carbs to fructose. And so that's an important thing to know. But anyway, so it turns out that, you know, animals in the wild, they find salt licks. No one really knew why they like salt. It turns out some experimental studies suggest that they use the salt to help them put on fat and to get bigger. And then actually in some places in the world, animals are given salt to try to encourage weight gain. That's really fascinating. So one of the questions that came up while I was reading the book is, are we talking solely about iodized salt that's in the processed foods? Or are we talking also about high quality Himalayan salt or Celtic salt? Like I'm in my, of course, in the back of my brain, I'm thinking, well, I don't really eat a lot of processed foods, but does that also mean my high quality salt that I use on my food, especially like meat that brings out the flavors? Because I'm sure there are a lot of listeners that are thinking exactly yeah. the same, same thing. Yeah. So first off, it's, it turns out that it's sodium chloride. And if it's other types of salts, it's not the same. It has to be sodium chloride. So that's the first thing. The second thing is really related to the it's all about the how much you're taking, you know? So in processed foods, they can put huge amounts of salt. If you make a homemade risotto, you know, there'll be, you'll probably use less than a teaspoon of salt, but if you buy it, you know, it can have like five times the amount of salt. So it's all about the dose. It's sort of like fructose. It's all about the dose and how quickly you eat it. Soups are, can be dangerous because soups can really contain a lot of salt without you really realizing it. And we actually did a study in people where we uh, took soup and made it salty purposefully and gave it to people with or without water. And if you took water with the salt so that the salt concentration did not go up in your blood, I mean, you took water with the soup, I'm sorry. So that the salt concentration didn't go up in your blood, we could block the activation of the switch. Blood pressure didn't go up and so forth. But if we didn't give the water, then you could activate the switch with the salty soup. So getting back to your question, um, I'm not sure what Himalayan salt is. And there's no question that salt enhances food in so many ways. But just be careful with how much you use and drink water with it. 
So here's an incredible thing. If you drink a glass of water before you eat the salt, you're going to dilute your serum sodium down a little bit. And then if you bring it back up to normal with the salty food, nothing's going to happen. On the other hand, if you eat salty food first and make your, the salt concentration go up in your blood, you're going to activate the switch and then you're going to have to turn it off by drinking water. And you can turn it off by drinking water. We did that in our animals. So you can, if you give enough water, you can block sugar from causing obesity. So, you know, water is just a powerful thing. But I do want everyone to know that you can overdo it with water. We don't want you to be drinking huge amounts of water because you can become intoxicated with water and end up in an emergency room. Don't do this and say, well, Dr. Johnson told me I should drink a lot of water. Drink six to eight glasses a day. That is a good number. You know, bring your urine output up to like three liters a day if you want to measure, you know, how much you're producing. And that's associated with good health. If you're running in a marathon, just drink to thirst because marathons can trigger water retention. And if you just had surgery, I know you had surgery once, you ride in the post-op period, be very careful about water because people tend to retain water easily then. And if you do those rules, you know, you'll be in great shape. And if you have any concerns, talk to your doctor, because if you have heart failure, for example, you might retain water as well. So there's some warnings to it, but in general, the vast majority of the population is not, are not drinking in enough water. And if you could drink more water, that alone would have a major effect on blocking obesity. In fact, you know, we discovered that the hormone vasopressin, there's a hormone that goes up in our blood when we're dehydrated. That hormone actually is a fat hormone. So when that hormone concentrates the urine to help prevent water loss. So when you get dehydrated, your urine gets really concentrated and yellow. That's because that hormone's working and that hormone's working in the kidney to prevent you from losing water. It wants you to hold on to water. So guess what? <laughs> it also stimulates fat because that's another way to store water. So uh, you can measure vasopressin in the blood. It probably is a great marker for, it is a great marker for predicting if you're going to become obese or diabetic. The blood test is called a copeptin test. And it's a great way to predict how you, what, you know, if you're drinking enough water, but a simple way is just to drink enough water so that your urine isn't translucent and pure like water, you want a, just a, the tiniest yellow color to it. A very, very, very light yellow. And you want to make about three liters of water a day. That would be of urine a day. That's what you would keep you very well hydrated. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believe that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. 
product with five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting-edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. And I think it's interesting because hydration is considered to be kind of this benign entity. I tell listeners all the time, I have about a 60 ounce glass container and that's how I monitor my water intake during the day. And I can tell by the end of the day, if I haven't hydrated enough and it's so, so important, it's so foundational to our health. And certainly, you know, this is just yet another incentive to make sure that we are consuming enough hydration. Now I want to touch on two more subjects and I know we're getting close to the end of our discussion. Let's talk a little bit about alcohol. And then I want to hear more about the switch diet so that, you know, we'll round out this very vibrant conversation talking about the things you can do, but Because alcohol, especially over the past two years, I think is particularly relevant. I think most individuals that I talked to were probably consuming more alcohol than usual, given 
the past two years, I'll just put it that way, um, without specifically relating it to a particular virus or a pandemic. So let's talk about what happens in the body when we consume alcohol and why it's very common, or at least clinically, it was very common for me to see that a lot of alcoholics were also sugar addicts. I have a family member who's an alcoholic and this individual like essentially consumes fruit all day long. That's the large basis of their diet. That's really what they crave and what they want. But there's actually some science behind all of this. Yes, there is. So alcohol, you know, there's frequently alcohol is given with sugar. You know, a lot of these hard drinks, you know, like margaritas and pina coladas and so forth involve mixing hard liquor with sugar. And there's a reason because we, that the combination uh, seems to, to work together in the brain. Sugar is, stimulates like uh, craving and dopamine and alcohol does as well. And so they're both kind of working together. And it's very easy to become addicted to hard liquor in particular. Beer and uh, wine also have a fair amount of alcohol with it. And it turns out that they can also be involved in this whole pathway that we're going to talk about. So, But the, the worst is the combination of alcohol and sugar. So it's been known for a long time that people who like alcohol often like sugar and people who like sugar tend to like alcohol. So there's lots of papers on this. The big breakthrough came, you know, with this discovery that the body can make fructose because we didn't really, we'd known about it, but we never thought it was that important. But now there are papers out there. A lot of it came from my group, but there's another group as well that identified two other groups that when you drink alcohol, the alcohol activates the enzyme that converts carbs to fructose. So again, it activates the polyol pathway. It's not the alcohol that becomes fructose. You drink alcohol, you make fructose, but you're making fructose from carbs. So when you're in the bar and you're drinking a, a drink and then you eat those pretzels, the alcohol is helping your body turn those pretzels into sugar in your body. And so, uh, and the salt also does. <laughs> so they salt and alcohol are, and are working together. So when we gave alcohol to animals, we, first off, it's known that alcohol can cause liver disease. And uh, any doctor knows this, that alcohol can cause a disease called cirrhosis. And that's often associated with fatty liver. And so they get fatty liver and then they get cirrhosis and then it can cause liver failure and death. And when we gave alcohol to animals, we found that they got fatty liver and liver disease but they were making fructose and we knew that fructose could cause fatty liver. So we asked the question, could the alcohol be causing liver disease through fructose? And what we did is we had these mice that could metabolize alcohol fine, but they can't metabolize fructose. And we gave them the alcohol and we found that they did not get fatty liver. And so it turns out that this has been discovered by two other groups as well, that the liver disease from alcohol is from sugar. It's from the fructose that the alcohol is triggering the production of. It's unbelievable. So now when I go and round at the hospital and I see patients with alcohol liver disease, I find that almost always they have sugar or soft drinks in their room because they, when they can't drink alcohol, they want to drink sugar. But the sugar water and soft drinks are also bad for the liver. So you need to actually tell them that and uh, try to uh, have them avoid that. 
Now, the other side of the coin is that the craving of sugar and the craving of alcohol are linked. And, you know, we know that we have taste receptors for our sugar, sweet, we sweet receptors. But did you know that if you knock out the sweet receptors so you can't taste sweet, you still will love sugar? So animals that cannot taste sugar will still pick it out and become fat from the sugar. So this sweet receptors help you I help you find foods that have sugar in it, but the addiction is not driven by the sugar taste. Interestingly, artificial sugars help, you know, activate the sweet receptors on the tongue too, cause a little dopamine response. There's a little pleasure there. But if you uh, knock out the sugar, the sweet receptor, the animal doesn't care for artificial sweeteners anymore. And so it's the fructose. The fructose is causing craving through a mechanism that doesn't involve the taste. And it's probably through its metabolism and the fact that it lowers the energy levels and that makes you crave. And we believe that that's likely the mechanism. So when we block the metabolism of fructose, we can block the craving of sugar. So if I take an animal and I prevent that ATP level from falling, suddenly it doesn't care about sugar anymore. You know, it still likes glucose a little bit, but basically it doesn't care for fructose anymore. The fructose only is working by dropping the energy and then you don't really care for it. Now, alcohol for years has been also reported to drop ATP levels in cells. And we think it's because it's being converted to fructose. And when we uh, took animals that could not metabolize fructose and gave them alcohol, they showed a reduced intake of alcohol. Very, they still liked alcohol, but they took about half or less, maybe even a, a third or a fourth of the amount. And so this led the National Institute of Health to give us funding to try to develop inhibitors to block fructose metabolism as a new treatment for alcoholism. And, uh, you know, that I spend a lot of my time every day working on trying to develop inhibitors to help people who are, have alcoholism. And I'm working not on blocking alcohol. I'm working on blocking fructose as my means to prevent that. Now we, I have to give a, a statement that we haven't published the paper on this yet. It's uh, but it's coming. And I'm comfortable talking about it, though. It's really fascinating. I think because I grew up with an alcoholic parent, I understand alcoholism, you know, uh, probably both clinically and also personally. And so I'm so grateful that you're doing this kind of research to help alcoholics and their families. Now, I want to be respectful of your time and I want to make sure that we touch on the switch diet uh, so that the people that are listening, they're trying to figure out what should I be doing or what should I not be doing? Let's spend a little bit of time talking about the switch diet, what it is, what it incorporates, breaking down the macros, which I think is really important. Okay. So there's really two aspects to, the, to uh, my prescription for staying healthy. One is how to um, prevent activating the switch. And that pretty much is what we call the switch diet. So it's, you know, because if you don't want to get fat or, or diabetic, you want to be able to understand how to not activate the switch, or if you're going to do it, to do it. It's sort of like a dimmer switch. So, you know, it's not that you're going to tr 
have it off the whole time. It's just that you're going to try to not be activating a lot. And then there's a, a second approach, which is, you know, let's say you're already overweight and your mitochondria are suppressed. How do you get back to a healthy weight? So there are really two different prescriptions. But when I talk about the switch diet, it's really, you know, how to stay healthy. And the biggest thing is obviously to figure out how to reduce your exposure to fructose. And so the obvious one is soft drinks are off, you know, liquid sugar, fruit juice, soft drinks, power energy drinks, power drinks. These are like the worst. You do not want liquid sugar because the concentration is really high and, and it activates that switch big time. Obviously trying to minimize cakes and things like that. Obvious, uh, you know, uh, sugary foods and reading labels, that's really important. You know, jams and jellies and uh, uh, sweetened yogurts and the barbecue sauces. These kinds of things are obviously high in sugar. Processed foods are often high in sugar. So you get have to re like read labels. And so that's important. Now, interestingly, natural fruits have fructose in them and, and animals will become obese by eating huge numbers of them. So the, you know, um, orangutan will eat like a uh, hundred of these large fruits. They gorge all day long on them. We don't gorge all day long on fruits, uh, except maybe your friend. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, most fruits have like between three and eight grams of fructose. And there's a shield, the intestine shields you the first five grams or so is inactivated in the intestines. So like the fructose and vegetables, don't worry about them. Don't even think about them. The fructose in natural fruit, you know, one fruit is going to be primarily inactivated. Yeah. There's some fruits that have a lot of sugar in them. Figs, for example, you know, be careful with figs and dates, be careful with dried fruits. Those, But a lot of fruits, you know, they have fiber, they have vitamin C, they have all these things that kind of counter the effects of fructose. And, and so, you know, and the intestine shields, the first five grams. So natural fruits are okay. Uh, you don't want to eat a huge number. You don't want to eat a bowl of grapes in, in one setting, but, but basically I go into this in my diet. It turns out that high glycemic carbs are the other big bad guy because they can get converted to fructose in the body. So that's rice, potatoes, chips, uh, cereal, bread. Ah, the things we love. And so, you know, I try to give good guidance on this. And again, you know, part of it is how you do it. So for example, if you have a piece of bread and you put an avocado on it, that will actually uh, decrease the glycemic index. So I have a continuous glucose monitor. Mm -hmm. If I eat a piece of bread, my glucose goes up to 130 and that triggers the production of fructose. Okay, not good. 130, 140. If I put some avocado on that piece of bread, my glucose goes up to like 105, 110. It's not going to activate. So if you can keep your glucose to like 120, 110 following a meal or lower, you're not going to convert. Or if you're going to convert any fructose, it's going to be pretty small. So high glycemic foods, you got to watch. Drinking a lot of water. We already talked about that. Try not to eat really salty foods. If you get thirsty, you've activated the switch. You know, meats. So it turns out that you can also activate the switch with certain types of umami foods. So umami is the third taste that we like. So there's sweet and salt. We like those for a reason because it, 
It was to help us identify foods that could activate the switch. Umami turns out to be a receptor for uric acid, really. It's basically a taste for foods that are high, that will increase your uric acid levels. It's all part of that same switch. Remember, fructose gets converted to uric acid. So umami foods can cause obesity if you eat a lot of them. And the good news is we usually just use umami as more like a flavoring. It's, we don't really eat grams and grams of glutamate and umami foods. There's some exceptions. The big one is beer. And beer is the, it's like a soft drink. It's not the alcohol. The alcohol is bad enough. The alcohol will activate fructose production, but the yeast has so, the brewer's yeast in the beer is what is really responsible for this rich umami that can activate the switch. So it turns out that of all the umami foods, it's beer that you have to be most careful of. And that beer gut and the beer, you know, rise in blood pressure and triglycerides and fatty liver, it's all part of the same switch. It's beer is like a soft drink. I hate to tell you that because I know so many people love beer. If you're going to drink it, sip it, try, you know, Remember again, it's about the concentration. So if you have a, if you have to have a soft drink, drink it over the longest period of time you can. Mix it with, with water, and you know. And same thing with beer. It's not that you can't drink a beer; you just have to drink it slowly. Don't drink it fast. And then in terms of meats, processed red meats turned out to have a lot more umami, uh, glutamate release, and stuff because of the way the meat's prepared. And processed red meat is associated with diabetes is, is associated with obesity and for probably for that reason. Unprocessed red meat, poultry, they're probably fish. For the most part, they're really good. You can be a vegan and do well on this diet. You can be a carnivore and you can probably do well on this diet too. You know, So it's about the type of foods you eat within a group. So there's good proteins and bad proteins. There's good fats and bad fats. Monosaturated fats are good you know, omega-3 fatty acid rich foods are good. And so what's wonderful is it sort of fits what people are discovering clinically. And then there's a huge benefit of intermittent fasting. If you want to lose weight, a huge benefit, huge benefit. Uh, The keto diet is a great thing. I'm a little worried about being on the keto diet chronically. I don't think that ketones are really enough long-term for people. I certainly met people who are doing well on it, but I haven't studied it well enough to be certain, but I am a little nervous about long doing the keto diet for a long time. So I would do it for like a month or two months, but then I would try a little bit more balance. So that's sort of the big story. I actually am a fan of dairy. I understand that a lot of people have believed that casein is not good, this dairy protein, but I haven't really studied it, but from my, from the literature, you know, I, I kind of like milk-based products, uh, you know, if, if you're not lactose intolerant based upon my reading. Yeah, well, that's so helpful and certainly gives people a perspective to switch from. And it sounds like it's really a largely unprocessed diet. So if you come to it from differing dogmatic principles about nutrition, whether it's low carb or keto or carnivore, plant-based that there's a way to adapt it for your lifestyle. Yeah. Please let listeners know how can they connect with you? How can they purchase your book? Obviously, it's going to be part of my, you know, must reads for 2022. It's a great book and it really 
there's so much about it. It's not just focused on the science. There's a lot of anthropology and evolutionary information that's in there. Like you can completely nerd out. And for full disclosure, I had over 20 pages of notes. I was trying very hard to focus on the big concepts. (laughs) I could have spoken to you for hours, but let our listeners know how to connect with you outside of the podcast. Well, thank you so much for the interviewing me. And uh, you can reach me through drrichardjohnson.com. That's my website. That's the easiest way. I do have Instagram and Twitter. It's Dr. Richard J. Johnson, uh, Instagram. But I'm not great at using social media, but I'm trying to learn more. Remember that I'm a scientist. Anyway, yeah. And then, you know, it's available through all the bookstores and websites. But yeah, drrichardjohnson.com is a great way to reach out to me. Well, wonderful. I have my dogs barking in the background, but it's been such a pleasure to connect with you. Thank you for carving time out of your busy schedule to connect with listeners. Thank you too, Cynthia. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 